All right, so my new young adult novel, Malraux and the Midnight Organ Fight, is out now. It's a book about two teen detectives who have to solve a series of grisly murders one summer in San Francisco. There's murder, there's thrash metal, there's mayhem, and believe it or not, there's also a love story. It's dark and fun and fast. It's like, uh, I don't know, Sherlock Holmes meets Rick and Morty. You can get it anywhere that sells books. Uh, and, and though it is available on Amazon, who will, you know, drone it into your bedroom and leave you a special mint on your pillow, uh, if you could, order it from your local indie bookstore. They need your help, and we need them to survive. Because a city without a bookstore is not a cool thing. And if you live in an uncool city, then find the nearest cool one and order it from the bookstore there. I get it. Amazon is convenient, but their rent is paid throughout the apocalypse. Your local bookstore owner is trying to figure out how to pay this month's rent or face a certain personal apocalypse. So thank you for your interest in my book. I really do appreciate that. And if you buy a copy, send it my way, and I'll sign it for you, and I'll send it back. Not by drone, but if I could, you know I would, because then I'd be inside your house. Uh, a million thank yous for your support. You guys really are the best. I really, really appreciate uh, your interest in the book, your continued support of your local bookstore, and your continued support of this program. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Last flight out Grounded where you stand No benefiting from the doubt No clinging to dry land Now the whole cold truth Is revealed And there's not of Steve Dawson and Funeral Bonsai Wedding, which features my guest today on the program, Steve Dawson. Let me tell you a little bit about Steve Dawson. So, the California-born Steve Dawson migrated to Chicago as a young man. Once he was there, he found himself playing in the beloved local band Stump the Host. After that band called it a day in 1993, he formed Dolly Varden with his future wife, Diane Christensen. The band's name came from the Dickens novel Barnaby Rudge, but there was nothing of England in their sound. A stirring blend of Americana and indie soul, Dolly Varden toured with Whiskey Town and Government Mule, had a huge following in Europe, and put out six records, their last being 2013's For a While. So it's been a while since Dolly Varden put out new music, but Steve Dawson has been very busy indeed. A Berkeley College of Music graduate, Dawson is one of those guys who very quietly does a lot. Aside from putting out several solo records, co-writing a book with Mark Caro called Take It to the Bridge, Unlocking the Great Songs Inside You, operating his own recording studio called Colonel Sound Emporium, and teaching guitar at the legendary Old Town School of Folk Music, Dawson somehow found time to form a band called Funeral Bonsai Wedding. 
flanked by three accomplished Chicago free jazz players, vibraphonist Jason Dozowicz, drummer Charles Runback, and bassist Jason Rebke, Funeral Bonsai Wedding's sound is as moving and powerful as it is inventive. Dawson's voice floats in and out of the songs with soulful authority, and each composition is imbued with cosmic power, ethereal beauty, and sheer musical bliss. Look, Steve Dawson has been one of my favorite songwriters for years, and I wanted to find out what makes him tick. So, let's tick away with Steve Dawson, shall we? Enjoy this conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I was born in San Diego and lived there till I was 12 and then uh, moved up into Idaho, up in the mountains near Sun Valley and went to high school up there, like junior high and high school here, and then went to Boston for college and moved to Chicago right after that. So, Were you in Boston in the mid-80s when there was that huge explosion of all those cool bands like Scruffy the Cat and Del Fuegos? I, um, I was at the Berkeley College of Music and studying like jazz and jazz arranging so i wasn't i wasn't paying attention to the pop or rock music world at the time so that that very well may have going been going on but i <laughs> i wasn't part of it i was <laughs> not involved sadly i probably would have had a lot more fun well i imagine that you must have been going to school with people who probably went on to have many different kinds of careers in music who were some of your contemporaries when you were at school I think Amy Mann had just been there when I was there. I didn't know her then. Um, Gillian Welch, I think, was there then. There's a really gifted jazz guitar player named Mark Whitfield that I knew and was friends with. A lot of the people are, are sort of behind the scenes, kind of like recording engineer people or, you know, side men, stuff like that, side players. Not too many stars. There was, There's a few jazz jazz that have done very well. There's a tenor player named Sam Newsom. In terms of, for you, when did you self-identify as a musician? When did you realize you weren't going to be a stockbroker? <laughs> um, I took guitar as an elective in seventh grade because we arrived in Idaho and my choices were limited. And so to fill out my schedule, they were like, well, you could take guitar. And I was like, well, I don't play guitar and I don't know. And they're like, well, that's fine. So I took it and um, I had this incredible teacher named Linda Terry, who uh, just basically inspired me to want to play music. And I think pretty quickly, like within a year, I was like, this is all I want to do forever. <laughs> and I just was addicted to play, playing and practicing and learning songs and started writing songs pretty quickly within a within a year or two up to that point i'm always interested in that in that origin story moment but up to that point were you a music fan i mean were you listening to a lot of music yeah as i think back i mean i didn't think so at the time but i think as i think back to being a little kid and hearing songs on the radio i was always drawn just drawn to like figuring out like what's the bass doing or you know what's why does that sound so cool um and then i you know i love beetle records I just was fascinated by the, the sort of like sonic worlds that were created in 
in those recordings. I remember sitting as a little kid, just listening to the White Album from start to finish, including all the weird stuff and just being transported. So, yeah, I think um, I think the the you know the cards were already laid out. I just didn't realize it. I just you know I didn't think that there was anything unusual about that. When you had the guitar in your hands, it felt like a natural thing. In other words, it was clear that was your instrument. Ah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, if I had been presented with the idea of playing piano, I probably would have taken to that as well. You know, it's. I don't think the the specifics of guitar, although I think guitar is cool. I enjoy it. <laughs> I don't. I think it's more just music because I love playing. I mean, I play bass a lot. I play bass in, in friends' bands, and um, I play drums, and I play piano pretty badly, but I still love it. I don't think it's instrument-based. I think it's just immersion in music that I love. You know, growing up here in the Bay Area, I so I became, I was a tennis player from very young, and the tennis racket always felt, because I was terrible at sports, but the tennis racket just made hmm. sense to me. I could I could handle it with a lot of dexterity, but my work ethic as a young guy was awful, and I think I would have been a much <laughs> better player had I had I had discipline. You seem like a guy who was disciplined. I'm projecting onto you that you were that you were far better than I was with discipline. But you know, you seem like a guy who really got down to work as a young man. Is that is that perception true? It didn't feel like work, so possibly. I mean, I I was obsessed, and um, honestly, we lived out on a dirt road. I didn't. There was no friends. I couldn't walk to any friend's house. We were, you know, miles from any other person my age. There was really nothing to do besides um, go fishing or play guitar. I mean, I mean, I, you know, my sister had gone off to college. I was the only, I was the only kid. So yeah, I I I recently went to this um, guitar camp that Richard Thompson puts on a, a couple of years ago, and he was talking about as a young man of about the same age, because someone asked him, I think the very same question, like what as a young person possessed you to want to practice so hard that you were, you know, an incredible musician by the time you were 17 years old or whatever. And he's like, he said, you have no idea how incredibly boring it is in the, in the Midlands of England <laughs> in the, you know, in the 1960s, there was literally nothing to do. So he says guitar was like, thank God, there's something to do. Which, I mean, he's uh, he's underselling himself, um, clearly, because not everyone turns out to be Richard Thompson. But right. the combination of his, you know, his musical aptitude and then the, the opportunity and then the fact that there was nothing, no distraction, you know, no internet, no game, you know, no video games, nothing. And I was kind of in the same situation. Were your parents very nurturing of of your artistic endeavors? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, my dad's uh, an illustrator, a wildlife illustrator, and uh, loves the arts, loves music. So he, yeah, he thought it was cool that I was into music and never questioned the choices. Did you find that the the way that you were looked at once you became the musician, like when you got to high school? Um, and your proficiency was probably, you know, uh, 
much higher than when you were in seventh grade. Did you find that you socially that you got treated in a certain way that you wouldn't have if you if you weren't a musician, or did you did you feel like an outsider? Like what what was the feeling socially in high school? In high school, I mean, it was a tiny little high school. We had my class was seventy people, and everybody oh. everybody knew everybody knew everybody, and um, um, I mean, I I had friends, <clears throat> and. Everyone thought it was cool that I played guitar, I think. Um, but, you know, there was your normal high school cliques. So there was, like, the cool kids. I was definitely not with the cool kids. But um, I think I got a little bit of – I got a little bit of room for being slightly a weirdo. I was – there was also – when I was, like, a freshman in high school, I got bullied, which, I, you know, carrying a guitar case made me a target, so I'd get – punched on the bus or like tripped and stuff like that but once I got a little further into school and we were sort of top dogs it that didn't happen anymore Um, right and I was in a I was in a band with some friends and that was that was fun and cool but it's not I mean I've heard a lot of old-timer sort of classic rock guys saying the guitar or they get into playing in a band for the girls, you know, because it's attractive to girls. And I, I will say that never was a, that was not a desire, a defining factor for me, or nor was it, nor did it bear out in, in actuality. I hear those, um, those guys, you know, to a person say like, well, you know, there's some, they're lying if they say they didn't get into it for the girls. I'm like, well, then you'll have to call me a liar because that is not at all the reason I got into it. <laughs> But watching MTV in the early 80s, where you would see these really sort of strange looking guys uh, with these gorgeous girlfriends, you did realize there was some like, um, you know, <laughs> connective tissue between fame and uh, an attractive women and, you know, being in a band and it had a way of attracting yeah. sort of, um, so, so yeah, I mean, on a, that level, certainly you could, you could see that happening. Yeah. Fame, I think, more than just being a musician. Yeah, because I think the the idea of being a musician has a romantic thing to it, but it's also like, uh oh, <laughs> this person is going to have no security, like, and also they're a little bit nuts. So, um, yeah, all the musicians <laughs> I know now are all we're all married to to social workers, to people who are you know, <laughs> who who see see troubled people as a as for a living. That's funny. That's that's kind yeah. of interesting, Steve. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about um, your relationship to Chicago, and uh, what? How old were you when you moved to Chicago? Uh, I was twenty-two. Tell me about your relationship to the city. How do you how do you regard it, and and is it? Do you consider that to be home? I guess it feels like home now. Yes. Um, Chicago is a great city. It really is, and because it has it has a great um, community vibe. The, I think that's partly like the Midwestern thing. It's, it's non pretentious, so people are willing to try things, and there's not 
there's very little of an attitude of whether something is cool or not cool. Um, people will actually, you know, go hear bands because they like them, not because they, it's the place to be seen. Um, there's a lot of music venues here. There's a, there's the, the stylistic variety is, is incredible, especially in the last 15 or 20 years. It feels like the, the community spirit of musicians is everyone's willing to collaborate with everyone and just kind of feel what, what, um, find out what can come of that, which is really great and really, really fun. That was not the case in the nineties here. It was a little more cutthroat and clicky, but that that evaporated once the chance of success or like stardom got, you know, left. Then everyone started loosening up and deciding just like, oh, well, let's see what happens if I get that person to play with that person. Um, yeah, Chicago has kind of got a down to earth thing. There's a great Steve Albini uh, essay where he talks about how Chicago is the perfect place for someone in a band to be because all of the things that you need, like even as far as like getting a mechanic for your van, getting an affordable van, an affordable place to live, proximity to markets that have like seven hour drive <clears throat> and then musicians and ability to record and all that kind of stuff. So Chicago, yeah, Chicago's cool. I imagine that you're based on your output and, I, and I've listened to you. I, my, my, Entry point to you was the Dumbest Magnets album, the Dolly Varden record. Um, and having watched your career for as long as I have, I've always imagined that your record collection has a very varied uh, – your palette seems very varied. I imagine there's punk rock in there. You mentioned Steve Albini. I imagine there's folk. I imagine there's world music. I imagine you have a very – wide swath of genres in your collection have you been a guy who's always listened um to whatever you can uh you don't seem very genre specific i would say i worked for a long time at a at a jazz record store um that also carried lots of weirdo experimental music and um international music so through that job i i did collect a lot of different types of music and also heard a lot because people that were working there would, you know, there'd be someone who loved Brazilian music and someone who loved soul music and someone who loved like screechy jazz. So all that stuff got played. So whenever I was there, it was just, just like absorbing all this stuff and listening. Um, so yeah, and I would say my, my dad was a huge jazz fan. So that was always playing in our house. Um, and then I just, I've always personally been drawn to singer-songwriters and people that have that sort of plaintive, um, plaintive quality of songs. So that's people like Towns Van Zandt and Neil Young and that kind of stuff. Did punk rock land for you at all? Later, later, because it, it didn't really show up in Idaho, honestly. I mean, it, the heyday of punk was when I would have been in Idaho and it, I remember hearing the Dead Kennedys and loving it, but um, I, I sort of was late to the party. Unfortunately, I would have loved to have been been there while that stuff was happening, but I sort of had as a research later. 
And what about bands like The Replacements or Husker Du? Did those make any impression on you at the time? A little bit, yeah. I liked The Replacements a lot. And um, that was right around the time I moved to Chicago, maybe a little before. So, yeah, I was I was definitely checking those records out. And Husker Du, I remember loving the sound of those records. I, I, um, I worked at an ice cream store my last year in Boston, and Husker Du got a lot of airplay at the ice cream store. And uh, yeah, I remember just loving the just like the sound, the saturated sound of those the guitars and the the vocal on those records. Now, for you as a songwriter, and and you're one of my favorites, Steve. I, I love your work, and you know, oh, thank you. I, I wonder for you, and and I think about this a lot for myself as a writer. Um, you know, when when you're chasing something, like you write a great song, and you've written so many. Um, it's weird to think that that as artists, you know, the artist never goes, well, I'm done. (laughs) Now I'm going to go climb a mountain. I mean, there's always like, you write this amazing, perfect song. uh, And then you wake up the next morning and do it again, or try to do it again. Um, Do you feel that mastery of the craft is not possible? um, And you're always chasing the thing? Yeah, I think so. I think you're always chasing the thing. And I with the knowledge that you will never actually get there. It's like um it's a quest, but I think the the joy of it or the pursuit of it is all is in the is in the pursuit of it. So you're you're always got an eye on the next one. I mean when when a good song is showing up it's like, Oh, cool, this is happening right now, this is good. But it's sort of like once it's done or once it's out, you sort of like just check off the box and say like, okay, okay, that worked. Now what's next? Um, so yeah, I've never felt like I'm finished. It's always like, well, that was pretty good. What can I do? How could I do it better? Or yeah, or different. Maybe not better, but different. And does that notion of different, does that add layers of complexity that wouldn't be there if you hadn't finished the last song complexity not necessarily because simplicity is also something to strive for i remember some of the songs i wrote when i was in my early 20s were just stupidly complex because i was coming off of there was this you know there's a sort of young and um schooled attitude that things that are complicated are better so I was writing some like with like, you know, a chord change every measure and, and switching keys and all this stuff. And it was just stupidly complicated. And I found that some songs you could do with one or two chords for the whole song, you know, and um, that's equally or sometimes often better and a challenge and a cool challenge. So um, it's not it's not complexity as it is truth, like getting to the, getting right to it, right at it. And without artifice and without like just seeing the thing as clearly and as truthfully as, as can be done, I guess. Well, I know what you mean because, and what you're saying is that sometimes the complexity is in the simplicity because, you know, for me as a poet, my early stuff was very populated and very busy and right. probably, you know, overly ambitious and 
things I would never show anybody. But I think that when I refined it and I took out, it became less populated. The work, I think, got simpler, but it was it was complicated mm-hmm. to reach that moment of simplicity. Right, right. I think it's a more, it's a more sort of mature thing to to find just the right word or just the right phrase. Like that's a that's a that's um god what's the right word it feels so right when you it feels just feels so good when you get the right phrase so um i think that's the reason you keep doing it right i mean it's like you're always chasing the the way to articulate something that you feel and when you get it it's like ah i remember paul simon saying like there's no better feeling than when you when something comes out in a way that you like you like so I guess maybe it becomes an addiction of sorts. Yeah. And and I mean, even like Paul Simon, like even a line, like uh, as if I never noticed the way she brushed her hair from her forehead is a simple <laughs> line, but it's so beautiful. Oh, yeah. he, Yeah. He's tops for, for lines like that, where you're just yeah. like, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, just so perfect. I mean, and and for you, like a song, let's take a song from your songbook, like one of my personal favorites. And if I ever get married, I'm going to blare this at the wedding uh, is the the song. Everything is better. That is to me just a perfect song of utter just joy and um, energy. And that sounds like like a simple song. But I, I think that it is – I mean, tell me a little bit about something like that, like that would uh, – to a listener's ear, they would go, oh, that's a fairly, a fairly simple number, but it's so triumphant. What's happening right. like in a song like that? I think it's been a while, so I don't remember exactly – I don't remember writing that song um, other than I wanted, I wanted it to be this just burst of energy. And I think I was most likely – that just popped like singing that line just popped into my head which sometimes that's how a song gets written with so there's no guitar there's no preconceived anything it's just like i still i was probably just walking around the house going like everything is better and just then thinking okay well what can we do with this and i think also um i might have been at that time revisiting like paul Paul McCartney post Beatles. Yeah. Where those, you know, um, a lot of those wings hits, he'll just sing a line again and again and again. And you're like, that shouldn't work. You should be annoyed by that, but it's so fun. <laughs> so um, it could have been that where I just like, well, damn it. I'm just going to pull up Paul McCartney and sing the same line four times, you know? Um, and it works. So. And then the verses are just weird. They're just, they're just weird. So I don't know. That song, to me, it's super fun. The chorus is super fun, and then the verses are really weird. So, but yeah. whatever. <laughs> I love that song. It's, it's sort of a, um, it's such a build to exuberance. And what's amazing about that number is that, like, you're talking about the verses. The verses kind of like the momentum goes quieter, and then it builds back up again. Um, it just feels, again, it feels exuberant. It feels triumphant, and it feels, you know, cathartic. It's a, it's a marvelous number. Oh, thank you so much. Tell it's me, a fun one to play live, and yeah. Yeah, I saw. I found a version of you doing it with a band. You got you guys really kind of tear it up. <laughs> Everything is bad. Everything is bad. 
Tell me about you as a singer. Tell me about your journey um, in that in that milieu. Was that hard for you to start singing? Did you find that you liked it as much as playing guitar? Um, and how do you regard yourself as a singer now? That's a good question, and one that I don't get asked that much. Even though I think I put as much work into trying to be a singer as a, as anything, um, I I was sort of a shy singer when I first started playing guitar and um, did not sing that well in pitch. So I had to, I had to work at it. Um, and then I, I was kind of not knowing how to approach it that much. I mean, cause until I, I heard Van Morrison and I was like, Oh, that's how I want to sing. I want to sing like that guy. And I bought a bunch of his records and started learning a bunch of his songs to the point where it probably was too much because I couldn't do that. But I, there was something about the sound of his voice and the intensity of the commitment that I, I wanted and I wanted to try to get inside. And through that, I discovered, I shouldn't say I discovered, <laughs> I found or I started exploring soul music and gospel music and blues and found the source of where he got it from, you know, and uh, I can't do that either, but it is, it's the more sort of pure distillation of what he's aiming for. Um, and it's taken me a long, long, long time to sort of find my own voice while still trying to maintain that intensity and passion, but not sound like somebody else, like not sound again or try to sound like you know Sam Cooke or any of the people that I admire um, but I think I'm getting there and uh, it's fun to sing I, I do love singing live I love it I love it in your discography I love the fact that you can do these really beautiful quiet numbers or you can really belt it out yeah thank you um, I mean I would also say I also love like Nick Drake and I love sort of British Isles, women singers like Sandy Denny and um, Linda Thompson. I try to do that. I love Patty Griffin. Patty Griffin almost to me is like um, sort of like a Van Morrison in the intensity that she's able to sing. And she's a tiny person, but she pulls off this ferocious sound. It's, it's pretty amazing. So I found, I found a lot of inspiration in that's that style as well um so yeah i'm yeah and i've you know i've taken voice lessons to try to preserve my voice and get the tone better and all that stuff i'm you know i'm always always working on that always yeah and i can see what you mean about patty too i mean that living with ghosts record is such a great example of um you know how a song can build and she can just hit these 
piercing highs that are yeah. i mean they make, they make you stop in your tracks they're just absolutely yeah. unbelievable um yeah it's chilling it is and i and i've seen her do it live as well and i and i i see that as sort of a a through line with your work as well where it's sort of like it can go quiet and then it can go to these exultant um highs or painful highs and they're um right they're fantastic i, I love that i love that you mentioned her because I, I i do see a lot of similarities actually oh thank you yeah she's definitely a hero for sure oh she's amazing yeah she's just incredible um that first album that, that living with ghosts is just literally like a uh, a game film of just pain <laughs> it's like yeah i know Right? Oh, it's the most Lord. intimate glimpse of pain um yeah. that i've ever heard in my life there's inspiration from her as a just as a songwriter as well because she's not afraid she is completely fearless in, in her subject matter and and i just i was like well okay that's a, that's the thing to do don't don't shy away from saying exactly the thing so yeah um tell me a little bit about the new record um, so I started playing, I guess about 10 years ago with a, a friend, a jazz vibraphonist named Jason Adeshevitz. I met him through working at the, that jazz record store in Chicago. We were both working there and, um, I just really liked him as a person. And I can't remember the first time we actually played together. I know I, I played at his wedding, <laughs> Um, cause he was a fan of, and is a fan of what I do. And I was a fan of what he does. And, and so at some point we just said, let's, let's make some music together. And, um, it just felt really, really good. I just love making music with, with Jason. Um, he's, he's passionate and creative and, um, it just feels really good. Through him, I met Jason Redke, the bass player, who's equally all in and creative and uh frank rosalie the drummer who's a, a, as good a musician as i've ever experienced in my life so we i i decided to write an album using them as the band that was the first funeral bonsai wedding record and that came out in 2014. so we recorded that played some shows and then frank moved to amsterdam so that band I just didn't know what to do. I wanted to keep playing with, with the Jasons, but I didn't know what to do um, because Frank no longer lived here. So I, um, as I was just sort of like trying things out, I did a, a month of shows at the hideout at this local venue, just trying different things. So one, was a, one week was Dolly Varden, one week was just Friends, and one week was Funeral Bonsai Wedding with some other friends, this woman named Melissa Bach, who has a string quartet called the Quartet Parapluie. And um, I'd seen her play with others, including like um, Jay Bennett from Wilco did a show with the string quartet. And I was like, oh, man, someday I need to do that. And what is the current status of Dolly Varden? We're all still around. We just played um, last fall in England. We, we somebody flew us over to England for a, a, a private party, which was pretty cool. Yeah. We did a show in January. We did a show in January at a place called Space. We play there about once a year. Um, I think once I get 
I have this record and I've been working on my own in the studio making making a solo record for a couple of years as well. I have about 20 songs recorded from that. So once I get through that, then we'll start working on a new Dolly Varden record. That's cool. the big long-term, that's the big long-term plan at least. What do you think for you, Steve, has improved the most in terms of as a musician? What, what do you think, you know, something that you've worked on for the last 20 years or so, I mean, something you're trying to get your head around, what do you think has become something that used to be, and, and I'm asking this because a lot of people who listen to the show are, are young musicians. And, I, and it's really, I think it's really instructive um, for them to hear about something that maybe used to be a weakness that has turned into a strength. Um, hmm. I don't mean to put you on the spot about that, but if you can identify that in your own, in your own, uh, uh, you know, um, arsenal, uh, how would you answer that question? I would say the thing that has been this sort of long labored process is actually of letting go of letting go of um, expectations and go trying to sound like anything and just letting things happen and sort of like through that process finding finding my own voice but being true to my true to myself when young musicians ask you for advice about how to find their sound um what is the answer the only answer is to be more real, to be your yourself, and not try to please anybody. And yeah. that, I guess that would be that would be the advice. I mean, they always say, you know, find your own. Like that mean? I think that means um, try. Don't try to try to do anything. Don't try to sound like anybody, or don't try to please anybody else. Just do the thing that you hear and feel and. If people like it, great. And if they don't like it, fine. You know, that's just, but at least you're, you're doing the thing that you love to the best of your ability, I guess. Yeah. And I think also that people know when you're being phony, but more importantly, I think you know when you're being phony. Right. Right. Absolutely. And it doesn't feel good. Steve Dawson, one of the great practitioners of songwriting and truly, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest ones we've got. Uh, apologies to Steve's bandmates in Funeral Bonsai Wedding. Um, I literally mispronounced all of their last names. I thought, why just screw one of them up? Screw them all up. Uh, Jason, Jason, and Charles, if you're listening, I'm very sorry. But I love the record, and uh, it's truly one of my favorites of the year. So uh, maybe that makes up for it. I don't know. Find out yourself. Go buy it. Last Flight Out. Uh, you can find it at stevedawsonmusic.com. Uh, give it a listen and uh, find out what's going on in Steve Dawson's camp. There's always something. He's a very busy guy. And uh, I'm glad we got a chance to talk. I've always wanted to chat with him, and I really enjoyed it. My new book, Malroe and the Midnight Organ Fight, is out. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, it's a young adult novel about murder. So... <laughs> So buy it for your murder-curious teenagers 
Uh, go to my website, alexgreenonline.com. Uh, find out about the book there and uh, go to all your favorite local indie bookstores and they will order it for you. Don't do the Amazon thing. I know you want to, but don't do it. Don't, 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 don't do it. I know you want to hit that button, that Amazon button, but don't do it. Pick up your phone and uh, call your local indie bookseller. They'll love to hear your voice and then they'll order my book for you. Okay? Send it my way. I'll sign it for you. I really will. I promise. Uh, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one you're used to and uh, subscribe. Leave us a nice comment. Tell all your friends. Give us a rating. (laughs) It's a lot of stuff. It's like homework, but we would appreciate it if you did it. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor, or you can follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast, or you can email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Let's close the show with another song from Steve Dawson and Funeral Bonsai Wedding. This is however long it takes. Enjoy it. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Where are you calling from? Constant storm, however long it takes.
wasted breath. 